Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. You met Andrew already. Andrew and I are married and we have the privilege to pastor this 8.30 service. Now, I'm a little bit sad this week because this is our last week on the book of Acts. Can anyone put up your hand if you have loved studying the book of Acts? Yeah, me too. But I'm also not just sad, I'm also a little bit excited because this week we are working on the last eight chapters of Acts, Acts 21 to 28. That gets me a little bit excited because I'm a bit of a history buff. Not a little bit, I'm a big history buff. And this portion of Acts holds a lot of fascinating history. But before we jump in, and as we close on the book of Acts, I'd just like us all to pay some posthumous thanks to Dr. Luke. What a hero. Thank you, Dr. Luke, for writing such a detailed and carefully constructed account of how the early church formed in the early ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, Luke wasn't actually the one up the front preaching. He wasn't, to our knowledge, casting out demons. He wasn't healing people with a touch of his handkerchief. But without the efforts of Dr. Luke, the Bible that we read today would be incredibly different. And our ability to understand the Holy Spirit and the foundation of our faith would be so much diminished. So never ever underestimate God's ability to use you. Paul's impact on the Christian faith would not be what it was without the efforts of Luke. For every Paul, there needs to be a Luke. I want to honour all the Lukes in the room who play more behind-the-scenes roles because never underestimate how valuable you are in advancing the kingdom of God just like Luke. Now, before we get on to the current chapters of Acts, I want to recap where we've come, particularly as it relates to the ministry of Paul. So up until now, Paul has gone on these three missionary journeys. The first missionary journey takes us roughly AD 47 to 49. We read about it in Acts 13 and 14. And in this journey, Paul travels through Cyprus and what we know as modern-day Turkey. He plants churches throughout this region, and at the end of this trip, he writes the book of Galatians. He then goes on his second missionary journey, which takes us roughly AD 49 to 51, Acts 15 to 18. He starts to travel further afield at this point. And some of the key churches are established that he will then write his famous letters to. He spends 18 months in Corinth and he writes one and two Thessalonians at the end of this trip. And then Paul's third missionary journey we talked about last week takes us through AD roughly 52 to 57, Acts 18 to 21. And in this journey, he revisits many of the churches that he's already established he spends two years in Ephesus and he writes the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans towards the end of this journey. And during Paul's three journeys, we start to see some themes develop. The first is that salvation is for everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free. The second is that salvation is a free gift. It is not achieved by any form of works that we can do. Christianity develops a rapid following but there is also significant opposition in every town that Paul goes to. Yet despite this opposition, he plants these vibrant, thriving churches. And interestingly, the presence of opposition does not seem to correlate with outcomes. 
Pastor Bron shared with us last week about Paul's time in Athens. And she commented on the fact that Athens is actually one of the few places where there doesn't seem to be much fruit seen. And unlike most of the other towns that Paul went to, we don't see a thriving church established there. Athens was also one of the few places where Paul wasn't beaten. There was no mob that rose against him and tried to drive him out of town. In fact, the Athenians were so very tolerant of any and every viewpoint that they weren't moved by any of them. Does that sound familiar? So in Athens, there's very little opposition, but there's also very little success. And we can conclude that opposition is, in fact, not a sign that God is not in something. It's not a sign of failure. If you have a situation or a venture that God is calling you to, don't look at the presence or absence of opposition to see if God is in it. Look for the fruit to determine if God is in it. And with that, we get to Acts 21, Paul's journey to Rome. It takes us approximately AD 57 to 62, and we read it in Acts 21 through to 28. We start in Jerusalem. Paul has just returned from his third missionary journey, and he reconnects with the Christian church in Jerusalem, which is led by James. Now, this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James, which is different to the James who was the disciple, the brother of John, the sons of thunder. There is an uprising in Jerusalem by the, by the Jews there against Paul. And they, they're claiming that in Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, he's blaspheming against their religion. The mob is so irate that Paul is actually, they describe him, he's at risk of being torn limb from limb. The Roman commander in Jerusalem is aware of the commotion and actually arrests Paul in order to save him. As a Roman citizen, so Paul is a Roman citizen by birth, and as a Roman citizen, he's actually able to gain certain protections whilst under arrest by the Romans. And we see that every part of our life is given by God for a purpose. Paul had both Jewish and Greek heritage in his upbringing, which gave him a voice to both cultures. Paul spent his early years as a Pharisee, which gave him this intricate knowledge of God's word. He had a trade as a tent maker, which enabled him to travel but support himself with an income. And his Roman citizenship, which he'd had since birth, protected him now. Like Paul, we might not understand right now why certain parts of our life are the way they are. We might not understand why God has put certain experiences, good and bad, into our life or brought people into our life. But like Paul, know that God is able to use every single part of our past to create a glorious future. And what an example Paul is that when the people were beating him and flogging him, Paul didn't pray for God's wrath upon them. Instead of cursing them, Paul actually tries to speak to them. He comes out and puts himself in danger again to try and share God's love with them. I can only wonder if I would feel so gracious were I in Paul's shoes. But Paul had actually received many prophecies around this persecution. Prior to travelling to Jerusalem, he had it put on his heart by God that he must go to Jerusalem. But God had also gone to great lengths to warn Paul with prophetic words that he would face a lot of persecution when he arrived. And Paul says in Acts 21.13, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul was not surprised, nor did he assume that he was outside of God's will when the opposition came. Because success is not measured in human accomplishment. Success is measured in obedience to God. 
I'm going to say that one more time. Success is not measured in human accomplishment. Success is measured in obedience to God. Now, in the wake of a plot to kill Paul, he's transferred to Caesarea, a city on the coast. And he's transferred there under the protection of 470 Roman soldiers, spearmen and cavalry. God works in mysterious ways. It's actually Paul's arrest and imprisonment that gives him the protection to carry on with his ministry work and to travel it and take it to new places. In Caesarea, Paul is tried before the Roman governor called Felix. And as the prosecutor comes against Paul, you read the account, he comes against with this sickening pandering and flattery. It makes you cringe just reading the prosecution's account. Felix, the Roman governor, is actually married to a lady called Drusilla. And Drusilla is Jewish. She is the sister of King Herod Agrippa II. So Felix wants to keep the Jews happy. Otherwise, his wife's going to have something to say about that. Keep your wives happy, everybody. Um, But the odds are seemingly stacked against Paul. Yet despite it all, Paul maintains integrity. While the prosecution speaks with flattery mixed with lies, Paul just keeps to the truth. It says in Acts 24 that Felix was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Yet Paul never offers a bribe, he keeps integrity. And Felix gets to hear the gospel message, though we don't know what he does with it. But in trying to keep his in-laws happy, Felix keeps Paul in prison in Caesarea for two years until he's succeeded by a guy called Festus. Terrible name. So at this point, after two years, the Jews try and get Paul transferred back to Jerusalem where they're planning to kill him. And it's on trial before Festus. Terrible, terrible name. Paul still keeps to the truth. It says, Jesus says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Paul actually demands his rights as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to the Caesar because under Roman law, if you're a Roman citizen and you believe that you've been unjustly treated, you could appeal to the emperor. So Paul actually has the right to ask to be sent to Rome to appeal his case to the emperor. Festus can't actually even understand what Paul is on trial for. As far as he's concerned, it's some Jewish matter about a Jewish religion, about some dispute over a guy who maybe is dead, maybe isn't dead. He doesn't really know. Um, Festus says in Acts 25, I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. And actually, to help Festus to figure out these Jewish matters, he calls on the Jewish king Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice, who come in this great pomp and ceremony to Paul's trial, to try and clarify what the charges actually are. Now, King Herod Agrippa II is the great-grandson of the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. But this Herod Agrippa was actually born in Rome and raised in Rome, and so has very Roman allegiances. And as we know, his sister is married to Felix, the previous governor. And from his Roman standpoint, both Agrippa and Festus agree that there is actually no valid charge against Paul. In Acts 26.33, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But because Paul has appealed to Caesar, he now sails for Rome. Now, in this portion of scripture, Luke's writing, we did this, we set sail. And whenever Luke writes in using the term, we did this, you can assume that he was actually there for those events, different to when he writes, they did that. But Paul writes, we would set sail for Rome. So we can assume that Paul, that Luke is an eyewitness account to these events. 
Now, they set sail in the Mediterranean. Now, please forgive me, I'm showing you a holiday snap here. I'm not trying to make you jealous. There is a point. Yeah. So, <laughs> terrible place, Italy, never go there. Um, no, last year we were fortunate enough to spend a month in Italy, and as part of that, we had a couple of days on the Amalfi Coast and were, coast and were fortunate to have a day uh, doing a boat tour around the coastline. Our captain of our boat was an Italian man who was about 70. His name was Gian Piero. Gian Piero had been sailing on the Mediterranean since before he could walk. And during the day, he started to tell us about the weather patterns in the Mediterranean and why it could be so dangerous. And he explained something that had never occurred to me, that in an open ocean like the Pacific or the Atlantic, you can follow a storm system as it travels in a predictable direction. But in the Mediterranean, storm systems and currents can come from any direction and interact with each other, and it makes it very unpredictable. They knew this in the first century as well, and sailing wasn't recommended after September due to these unpredictable storms. Now, we know that Paul sets sail for Rome in late September, early October, AD 59. We know that they sail after the Day of Atonement, which is the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur in September. Paul's quite experienced in sea voyages by now, and he warns them not to sail beyond Crete, but the Roman centurion ignores him. And we get to the storm and the shipwreck in Acts 27. It is brilliant storytelling by Luke, so I'm going to read a portion for you. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force swept down from the island. The ship was caught in the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up hope of being saved. But Paul never loses hope. For him, it's as simple as, well, God has told me to go to Rome. Therefore, I can't die before I get to Rome. It's a challenge and an encouragement for all of us. God knows the day that he will call each of us home. Can we trust him with that? Which of us, by worrying, can add a day to our lives? It's back to Paul. There are 276 people on board. They spend 14 nights in the storm crossing open water. There's actually an almost comical event where the sailors try to abandon ship and sneak off in the lifeboat hoping no one will notice. The Roman soldiers do notice and they cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away so that no one can use it. And it's in this moment that Paul shows his leadership and actually takes command. The ship ends up wrecked and runs aground on the island of Malta, which is just off the coast of Sicily. And just as Paul had reassured them during the storm, everyone survives. And if Paul has not been enough through enough by this stage, he's helping build the fire when a snake bites him on the hand. Paul's not actually harmed by the snake, so the locals assume that he must be a god. And then he spends the next few weeks healing all the sick on the island, including the father of the chief official. And in return, the locals grant favour and supplies to them. They spend three months of the winter on the island of Malta before they take another ship onto Rome. And the rest of the trip through to Rome is actually relatively uneventful. But when they arrive in Rome, Paul's still under arrest. And he actually lives under house arrest with just a soldier to guard him. It's actually described that he is constantly chained to the Roman soldier. Now, I have so many questions about the practicalities of this. Like, how does he go to the toilet? What are the sleeping arrangements? But it seems that many of the soldiers who took these shifts chained to Paul get to hear the gospel. 
We know this because Paul writes the book of Philippians whilst chained to a guard. And he says in chapter one, now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. From house arrest, Paul meets with the Jewish leaders in Rome who've actually already heard about Christianity. They say in chapter 28, the leaders say, we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, that's Christianity. God calls each and every one of us to play our part in spreading the gospel. You are called to obedience, called to play your part only. You never know who's come before you and who will come after you. Clearly, some had come before Paul and many came after him, but success is not measured in human accomplishment. Success is measured in obedience to what God has called you to. And we see that some of those who hear Paul's message believe, others don't. Acts 28 verse 30 to 31 says that for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Paul stayed in Rome under house arrest for two years with no trial for no real crime. It seems completely unfair that Paul should be left to stagnate under arrest without trial. But he never seems to let it get him down. He says in Philippians 4.11, which he wrote during this time, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And in the most unlikely way, Paul is able to continue his ministry work without hindrance. And it's during this time that he writes the books of Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. He saw many people come into his home and continued leading and encouraging the growing church, albeit in a different capacity. And there ends the book of Acts. Everybody just stretch for a second before we move on because we're not ending yet. What happens after Acts? We owe Luke a great debt of gratitude for documenting so clearly the events of Acts because without this book, the foundation of the early church and the early ministry of the Holy Spirit would be very foggy to us. Certainly what happens after Acts 28 becomes hazy and lacking in detail. We know that Paul spends two years under house arrest and is released sometime towards the end of AD 62 or start of AD 63. And then in the years that follow, it's a little unclear what happens next. We know that he writes the books of 1 Timothy and Titus after his release, and he comments on some of his travels during these years. We know that he travels back to many of the churches that he's previously planted because he mentions them in these letters. He visits Crete, Corinth, Macedonia and Troas, among other eastern Mediterranean regions. There is some dispute as to whether he even got to Spain, but probably not. Then on July the 18th, AD 64, something happens that changes the course of Paul's life. They call it the fire of Rome. The fire takes six days to bring under control and in that time, half the city burns. And exactly as we would do now, in, in the face of some disaster, everybody wants someone to pin the blame on. Many people start to blame the current Emperor Nero. Now, Emperor Nero, who has thus far been reasonably tame, decides to make Christians the scapegoat for the fire. And persecution against the Christians rises exponentially from this point. It is said that Christians are killed for entertainment in the Colosseum. Nero infamously burns Christians as Nero's lanterns. 
It's a shame that Dr Luke has stopped his writing by now because we have to piece together what happens next from bits and pieces of other historians. And a lot of these events are documented by a guy called Tacitus. But it's in the wake of this persecution that Paul is imprisoned again in Rome. And it's around AD 65 to 67 that Paul's supposedly imprisoned in the Mamertine prison. And it's from this prison, from this dungeon, that he writes the book of 2 Timothy. He writes to Timothy, who's his protege, who at the time is leading the church in Ephesus. And Paul's tone in this letter is actually quite different to most of his other letters. You can tell that he's drawing to the end of his life. He's lonely. He describes how almost everyone has abandoned him and he stood trial alone. But even then, Paul remains gracious and he describes how God was with him and God strengthened him to continue to share the message of salvation. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, at my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Would we be so gracious if we were in Paul's shoes? But he says, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's an encouragement to all of us, no matter how alone we might feel, like Paul, God stands with us. God strengthens us. Now, our own dear Dr. Luke is an exception. It seems that Luke stayed with Paul more or less to the end. The book of 2 Timothy is essentially Paul's letter to pass the baton on to Timothy. He says in 2 Timothy 1, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul knows the reason why he is suffering and he is not ashamed. Suffering is not new to Paul. In fact, suffering has been part of Paul's life ever since his calling 30 years earlier when the Lord told Ananias in Acts chapter 9, I will show him, that's Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. Now Paul calls on Timothy to have courage and reminds him that God is always faithful. When Paul was on his way to Jerusalem at the beginning of this journey, Paul said in Acts 20, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of Christ's grace. Now, as he comes to the end of his race, he reflects on this in his letter to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says, The time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Paul was executed shortly after. The details are vague. But he left a huge legacy, not just limited to writing the bulk of the New Testament and establishing much of the early church. After Paul's execution, can you imagine him walking through the gates of paradise and hearing the beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I would say there are five main lessons we can take from Paul's journey to Rome. The first is that God uses even the minute details of your past in his plan for your future. The second, live a life of truth and integrity. The truth will set you free. The third is that success is measured in obedience to God, not in human accomplishment. The fourth, even when it looks wrong, in the midst of the riot, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the imprisonment, God is still in control and still has a purpose. 
And the fifth is that your job is to be obedient to what God has told you to do and leave the rest to God. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Can I ask before I close, if Paul was writing a letter to the chapel, what would it say? Would he say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Would he say, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We walk by faith and not by sight. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Can I ask, if Paul was writing a letter to you, what would that letter say? Would he encourage you? Would he say, for when I am weak, then I am strong? Would he challenge you? Would he say, do not be misled, for bad company corrupts good character? Would he say, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Would he say, if God is for us, who can be against us? Would he say, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Because the baton that Paul passed on to Timothy continued to be passed on through the generations and it's been passed on to us now. We will pass it on to our children, he'll pass it on to their children and their children's children until the day of Jesus' return. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. May we all get to the end of our days and know that we ran our race well with truth and integrity, caring more about obedience to God than what man would think of us. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.